what you love is what people will remember the most about you. What you love is what people will remember the most about you. At your funeral, you're like, wow, John, that took a turn. Took a turn to the dark side. Seriously. At your funeral, people will stand up and talk about the things that made you tick. The things that you were passionate about. What you celebrated in life will be part of the celebration of your life. What we're passionate about is what we're remembered for. This is sobering for parents and preachers who understand that 99% of what we say will not be remembered by those under our care. But what will be remembered, 100% of what will be remembered, is what we celebrated, what we loved, what we cherished and treasured. So you're off the hook to remember everything I say this morning. I pray that over the years that what I celebrate becomes what you celebrate. What we rejoice in reveals our truest heart, who we really are. This is true for us, but I think it's also true for God. What God takes pleasure in, what He's passionate about, what He celebrates reveals His truest heart. And of course, the Bible says that God delights in many things, the chiefest among them being His own glory. And I won't take the time to give you all the verses. There are hundreds of them. God's chief delight is in His own excellence, His own being. It would be sin, by the way, for God to value anything other than Himself above Himself. Follow that? You shall have no other gods before me. God can't put anything in front of God. He's chief in His affections. So he celebrates his glory. But the Bible says he celebrates other things. We come to the end of Genesis chapter 2, if you want to find Genesis chapter 2. And we're, see, we're going to see two things that God delights in that we may not have thought of before. Two things that God's passionate about. Two things that God celebrates. And Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25, we see the creation of the first woman and the first wedding. And that's where we're going today, the first woman and the first wedding. We're going to read all the verses, but we're going to zero in on 23 through 25. Verse 23 is Adam's celebration of Eve. Verse 24 is Moses' summary of marriage. So 23, Adam celebrates Eve. 24, Moses summarizes marriage. But behind these words, behind Adam's words, behind Moses' words, is the God who inspired them, the God who authored them, meaning that God delights in women and marriage. In other words, if God preserved Adam's jubilation over Eve and Moses' instruction about marriage, then he also wants us to see what they saw in the creation of woman, and in the creation of marriage. For many in our culture, women 
in general and marriage in particular have fallen on hard times and are quickly dismissed as irrelevant or as means to an end. But this text shows us that God made women and that God made marriage and that he's really happy about what he made. So happy that he, bring, he, he brings the creation of the cosmos to a climax with the creation of woman and the institution of marriage. It's not unimportant that the end of the creation account ends with the creation of woman and the institution of marriage. You might say he saved the best for last. Women and marriage are not useless and broken relics to be stored away in the grandparents' attic. They're beautiful and priceless pieces of furniture that deserve to be in the front room of the house of God's creation on display for all to see and enjoy. So let's look at the creation of each of these priceless pieces of furniture one at a time. First, we'll consider the creation of the first woman, and then second, the creation of the first wedding or the first marriage. The first woman, verses 18 through 23. Genesis 2, 18 through 23. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then, verse 23, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So let's consider the creation of the first woman. None of Israel's neighbors had a separate account of the creation of woman. The creation of woman in other cultures was always subsumed under the creation of man, if it was even if she was mentioned at all. This text, along with chapter 1, verse 27, was a surprising claim in the ancient Near East. In other words, no one was talking like this when the Bible was written. There were these, these myths, these ancient myths, where man would be created by various gods and forces and some really strange things. But woman was hardly ever mentioned, and if she was mentioned, she was just kind of thrown in as created with man. The Bible comes along and has a whole section devoted to the creation of woman. In chapter 1, verse 27, saying that both male and female were created in the image of God. 
This was revolutionary talk for the ancient Near East. The world wasn't slowly improving its view of women with each passing generation. The world denigrated women then just as it does now in many cases. The God of Israel, however, the God of the Bible, wants to make it clear that He made woman, that He made her, and that He made her and man to have a partnership, and that therefore women deserve the same kind of respect as men. Why? Because they're made in the same image of God. This was a bold claim in an abusive world where many men thought then and still think now that they can take what they want from women because women are inferior or because women owe it to them or women are less than them. The Bible, on the other hand, says no. Women are equal in worth and value and dignity. The Bible, on the other hand, celebrates the dignity and royalty and equality of women. Genesis 1.27 is the first poetry in the Bible. Moses writes this verse as poetry to capture God's joy over creating men and women. The God of the Bible has a much higher view of women than anyone in the ancient Near East and today. So the reason I'm belaboring this and will continue for the next few moments is because the Bible is often charged and Christians are often charged as being sexist or misogynistic, devaluing, minimizing, or being indirectly abusive towards women. What I'm trying to say, and we'll try to do this morning, is to say that that doesn't, that charge, that claim, that accusation doesn't hold up when you look at what the Bible actually says about women. If you come to the Bible with a humble heart, ready to learn rather than accuse, you'll see that God values women higher than you may do, definitely higher than many cultures in the ancient Near East and even today. One example of this is that in chapter 2, the creation of man gets how many verses? Top of your, off the top of your head. How many verses for the creation of man? Verse 7, 1. One verse. How many verses did I just read for the creation of woman? 18 to 23? Six. Okay? Six. I don't think that's an accident. One verse for man, six for woman. Another reason is that God says that Adam needs a helper in verse 18, but then he makes him name the animals in verses 19 and 20. We talked about this a little bit last week. But why did God do this? Because God didn't want to squander the precious gift of woman on someone who was unappreciative. Her appearance, appearance deserved a long buildup because she would be the capstone of God's world. Far from being inferior, she was the crest of the wave of God's creative power in the world. So he made Adam sit there and name all the animals one by one. And then came the woman. In chapter 2, verse 18, it says that the woman is made as a helper fit for the man. The Hebrew for fit literally reads that Eve was created as in front of Adam. She was in front of him, as in front. She corresponds to him. Neither superior nor inferior, but equal, one half 
of a polarity. Just as the South Pole corresponds to the North Pole, so woman corresponds to the man. They are equal in value. Again, there's no misogyny here. There's no sexism here. As we considered last week, and as one commentator points out, their sameness does not mean exactness. Their sameness does not mean exactness. Being the same ontologically or in their being, in their essence, doesn't mean there aren't different roles and designs for women in God's creation. Those who lobby for exactness between men and women actually end up harming women because they minimize the unique abilities of women. This is why allowing transgendered men to compete in women's athletics is unfair and unloving toward women. And we should say something about that. The creation of both man and woman is celebrated with this poetic outburst in chapter 1, verse 27. But then the woman gets another song in chapter 2, verse 23. In 2.23, the poetic outburst is reserved for the woman alone. These are the first human words in Scripture. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It seems significant that the first time a man speaks to a woman in the Bible, he's celebrating her. No misogyny here. This is Adam's outburst of joy over the creation of Eve. It says, oh my goodness, you have to be kidding me. I can't believe this is happening right now kind of moment. It's the kind of moment we all had at the end of the Cowboys game last Sunday. But in an opposite kind of way. Oh my goodness, you got to be kidding me. This can't be happening right now. Of course, that was for something terrible and heart-wrenching. This is for something glorious and beautiful. You've got to be kidding me, God. Really? She's mine? Me and Susie were yelling at the TV last Sunday, weren't we? I was running around the living room like a crazy man. Adam's mention here of bones and flesh is important. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It may be yet another indication of the equality of the woman. He, of course, obviously and most literally means that the woman came out of him. Literally, she was taken out of his side. She's of the same stuff as him. Therefore, she's just as much an image bearer as he is. But it may also refer to the fact that in that culture, men and women, or excuse me, bones and flesh, had different assigned um, capacities. Bones referred to someone's strength. Flesh referred to their weakness. Bones, strength. Flesh, weakness. So this may refer to the fact that men and women share the entire spectrum of human characteristics. Bones, strength, flesh, weakness. It's our bones that survive the decay of death. Bones symbolize strength. Flesh decays and rots, symbolizes weaknesses. Women, excuse me, woman here is declared as bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. In other words, she's not weaker or stronger. 
She's the same. She's the same. This bone and flesh language may also be a statement of covenant loyalty, similar to what many say in their wedding vows today, that will remain true to each other in weakness and in strength. In flesh and in bone, in weakness and in strength. In other words, Adam may be subtly declaring his loyalty, his loyalty to Eve, saying that circumstances will not alter the depth of his commitment to, to her. Your bone, you're my bone and flesh. We're the same, and I'm not going anywhere. No matter what happens, I'm not leaving. Then, the end of verse 23, he says, She shall be called woman, because he was taken, she was taken out of man. Woman, Isa, man, Is, Hebrew, Isa, and Is. So he calls her Isa, which is a title that echoes his own, Is. Interestingly, he doesn't say that she's going to be called female because she was taken out of male. Rather, he uses two words that sound alike to emphasize their interconnectedness and equality. This play on words anticipates and celebrates their deep intimacy. Isa comes out of Is. No misogyny here. Interconnectedness. The Puritan Matthew Henry said that Eve was, quote, not made out of Adam's head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Guys, you can use that when you're trying to go, like, that's good. And that's from a Puritan. People are like, oh, the Puritans, oh, they were so stodgy and they didn't care about romance. No, man, Matthew Henry nails it right here. You need to use that. Under his arm to be protected, near his heart to be beloved. Isa comes out of Isa. When Adam first sees Eve, he welcomes her with relief. This at last. At last. This at last. He identifies with her personally. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He's not threatened by her equality. He's thrilled by it. She has his heart from the moment he sees her. She's not property or a prize of war or a slave, or even the mother of his children yet, and he's celebrating her, and honoring her, and singing over her. His response is joy and delight. Why? Because in and of herself, she's worthy of praise, and honor, and dignity, and embrace, because she's what he is, an image bearer of God. The first man celebrated the first woman. And in and behind this celebration of woman is the smile and delight of God. Surely Adam's joy didn't exceed God's. Surely God rejoiced in the joy of his first son when he rejoiced in his first daughter. What father doesn't smile when they see their kids laughing? And remember I said that what we celebrate reveals our truest heart. God celebrates through Adam, the creation of woman. In and through Adam's joy is God's delight in his creation of the woman. God delights in his creation of his first daughter. 
ladies, sisters in Christ, can I ask you a question? How do you think God sees you? How do you think God sees you? How do you think God sees you? What do you think he sees when he sees you? What kind of thoughts tumble through his mind when he looks at you? You think he looks at you with disgust over some of the decisions you've made? With a coldness and arms crossed, kind of just waiting for you to get your act together? You think he's waiting for you to get married and have a bunch of kids before he starts validating your life? Do you think he's mildly displeased with you because your house isn't as clean as it could be? Because your kids aren't as well behaved as they could be? Because your marriage isn't as deep as it could be? Because your schoolwork isn't as good as it could be? How do you think God sees you, really? What thought goes through your mind when you think about what God thinks about you? What does he think? What does he see? Well, this text tells us what he sees. He sees beauty. He sees unparalleled radiance. He sees glory because he sees a reflection of himself. You bear the beautiful image of Almighty God. You represent the high king of heaven as one of his queens of the earth. With men, you reign and rule over God's world. You're uniquely and magnific magnificently made. Your beauty is stunning. And please, please, please listen carefully right now. This beauty has nothing to do with your waistline, your figure, your hair, your face, or your skin. Your beauty is rooted in a reality beneath your skin. Your beauty reflects the God who created the cosmos, who made you in His image. You're intrinsically beautiful. And you have so much to offer this world besides your looks. One day we'll all see just how radiant you are when Jesus returns he won't merely upgrade our current existence. He'll bring us into a new heaven, a new earth, where we'll reign with Him forever. And in that new universe, every redeemed woman, no matter how she has sinned or been sinned against in this world, will stand with a royal dignity and glory that will radiate from her forever and ever. What C.S. Lewis said of every person applies also to every woman. This is a familiar quote for many, but I want to read it again. Lewis says, It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninter uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and corruption 
such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, hear this one, all politics, remembering that there are no ordinary people. End quote. Many are blind to the true glory of women. But there's no excuse for this in the church of Jesus Christ. There's no excuse for this in the church of Jesus Christ. Those who know the truth about them. So men, my brothers, my brothers, do you celebrate the women in your life? Do you celebrate the women in your life? Do you celebrate the women in your life? Do you see them as objects for your lust or sisters made for glory? Do you pray for them and encourage them and spend time getting to know them? Or do you unconsciously demean them by always talking to them or at them and never listening to them? Do you assume that you're their teacher and they're your students? Brothers, if you want a lady to be impressed with you, stop talking and start listening. True story right here. This is free dating advice. Brothers, if you want a lady to be impressed with you, stop talking Start listening. Get super curious about her story, about her dreams, about her life, about her aspirations, about her hopes, about her thoughts, her ideas, her struggles. Women are looking for men strong enough to consider someone else's interest as more important than their own. Women understand if you may be nice on the outside, but they understand if you see them as inferior. You might think they're just all about drama or they're too emotional. They're not smart. You're not fooling anybody, guys. You're not fooling anybody. How do you see the women in your life? How do you see them? How do you see them? And does it match how God sees them? I have to say, I struggle with this. My own wife, the most beautiful woman in the world. She's so beautiful. Inside, out. Man, even this week, I spoke to my wife in demeaning ways. Even this week, I said words that were hurtful and rude and false. I'm sorry. The women in our life deserve better. They're made in the image of God. They radiate His glory. They have so much more to offer this world than their looks. Can I get an amen? So the first beautiful and priceless piece of furniture that God created and celebrated here is woman. 
The second piece of priceless furniture that God created and celebrated here is the first wedding. The first wedding, the first time a father gives his bride, his daughter away. Verses 24, we'll just start in 22, read it again here. Verse 22, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. There it is, father giving away his bride, giving away the bride. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Then verse 24, therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God celebrates the first wedding. I say celebrated because verse 24 is an explanatory comment. From Moses, not a continuation of Adam's song in verse 23. Verse 24 is like a short epilogue after the curtain has fallen on the drama of the creation week. It tells us what the whole narrative of chapter 2 has been about. Do you see the word therefore? Therefore, Moses, the writer, therefore, in light of all that I've just said, therefore... And then he interjects this summarizing statement to tell us why God created man and woman the way that he did. So he's saying because God created man and woman, or created man and then woman, and brought her to the man, therefore, this is what we take from this, this is what we're to learn, this is what we're to know, this is what we're to do, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this first marriage was obviously unique. It took place before sin entered the world. This first wedding was at the best venue ever, a temple garden of unparalleled beauty. But Moses interjects verse 24 in order to apply the principles of this first wedding, this first marriage, to all the marriages that will follow. He's teaching ancient Israel and us that this is how marriage, in light of what we've learned here from the garden, what God did in the garden, this is what marriage is supposed to be forever. And there are three things he says in verse 24. Three things that happen in marriage. There's an exclusiveness, a permanence, and a togetherness. An exclusiveness, a permanence, and a togetherness. First, exclusiveness. A man shall leave his father and his mother. There's a leaving of the parents. Now, interestingly, in that culture, the husband didn't actually leave his parents. The new couple usually stayed with the husband's family. So this leaving needs to be understood in a relative sense, not an absolute sense. The man's loyalty to his wife is so great that he leaves his family even though he stays with them. The point that Moses is getting at is that the marriage relationship is more important than every, of, every other Familial relationship. We say that again. The marriage relationship is more important than every other familial relationship. When a man and woman marry, their priorities change. Before marriage, their first obligations were to their parents. After marriage, they're to each other. Many marriages today struggle to get off the ground and many end up failing because these first loyalties are never established. 
This call to leave father and mother doesn't negate the call to honor your father and honor your mother. But it does change whose opinions you care about the most. It does change who you seek counsel from first. It does change who you share your deepest struggles and hopes and dreams and fears with first. It's not a call to dishonor mom and dad. It is a call to move towards your husband or your wife with all of the things you used to move towards your parents with. If I could summarize, I would say it like this. Husbands, future husbands, your best friend and most trusted confidant is supposed to be your wife. Husbands, your best friend and most trusted confidant is supposed to be your wife. Wives, future wives, your best friend and most trusted confidant is supposed to be your husband. When that order is disrupted, it trickles down into children and grandchildren and really hurts in ways that are hard to articulate. Hurts children in ways that it's hard to articulate. Husbands and wives have a new loyalty, a first loyalty to one another. There's an exclusiveness. They must leave father and mother. And then there's secondly a permanence. A permanence. They must hold fast. It says, you shall leave, a man shall leave, and hold fast to his wife. Holding fast can literally mean stick to. I love this. Stick to. Stick to. This is covenantal language describing God's relationship with Israel throughout the Old Testament. Just as Israel must leave the idols of the nations and stick to the Lord, so also must the husband and wife forsake all others and stick to one another. <clears throat> Just as God in a sense, left the nations and stuck to Israel, so also husbands and wives must leave all others and stick to one another. The covenantal nature of marriage also means that marriage isn't a private deal. It's a, prov- a public declaration. <clears throat> You're like, well, I, you know, I just got married at a JP. That was public. You didn't do it privately. Marriage is a public declaration before God, others, and the state that you're giving your life to each other. That you're giving your life to each other. Marriage as a covenant means that the vows that husband and wife exchange, whether before a pastor or a priest or in a civil court, are what forms the marriage. Vows are what forms the marriage. This means that a marriage isn't consummated or achieved on the wedding night, but rather when the vows are exchanged. Please hear this carefully. There's a lot of misunderstanding on this. Marriage is bigger than sex. The idea that a marriage truly begins when sexual relations occur rather than when vows are taken is foreign to Scripture. If this were so, then I'd be lying when I, at the end of a wedding ceremony, say, I now pronounce you husband and wife. I believe I'm telling the truth in that moment because I believe that sex doesn't make a marriage. A covenant makes a marriage. Vows make a marriage. Promises make a marriage. That commitment to one another makes a marriage. Sex may or may not happen ever. 
but they're still married. The covenant has been made before God, others, and the state. That covenant is what constitutes the marriage. Which also means, to my single friends, if you want to get married just to have sex, you don't understand what marriage is. When you, when you get ready to commit your life to someone else, no matter how you feel or no matter how they feel, then you're ready for marriage, not when you're just ready to have sex. Why? Because marriage is a covenant, not sexual relations. There's so much more that could be said here about divorce and remarriage. And for more on these kinds of topics, you might get on our website, PrestonHighlands.org, and look up a sermon I did a few years ago on Mark chapter 10, 1 through 12. Jesus is teaching on divorce and remarriage. There are lots of questions, and God hasn't left us totally in the dark on these things. So I would point you there if you want to dig further into the permanence, this idea of permanence. So exclusiveness, permanence, and then finally togetherness. There's a togetherness. They leave, they hold fast, and then the end of verse 24, they shall become one flesh. There's a oneness in marriage that happens. The exclusive and permanent nature of the marriage relationship is the soil where this oneness grows. This is why cohabiting before marriage is such a bad idea. Co Habitating, I don't know if I'm saying that right. When you live together before you're married, is a cheap substitute for this oneness. It often poisons the relationship and hinders it from growing into the depths of God's design. It's not unforgivable or irredeemable, but it is unwise and a bad idea. This oneness is more than sexual. This oneness has to do with all of your lives coming together, where your life is literally intertwined with another person's lives, so that when they weep, you weep. When, weep. when they rejoice, you rejoice. When they're hurt, you're hurt. When they're sick, you care for them, and vice versa. There's a oneness that happens that's more than sexual. But I do want to say that it's not less than sexual. Marriage is where men and women should experience each other sexually. Verse 25, and the man and his wife were both Naked, as we say in East Texas. And we're not ashamed. They were naked and not ashamed. So, marriage is where sex becomes a win-win. It's not just for the pleasure of one person or the other. And I love how Ray Ortland puts this. He says, quote, Marriage is sealed, celebrated, and refreshed through sex. Inside the circle where only a husband and wife fully belong, they cultivate safety and honor so that sex is unashamed unashamedly joyful for both of them equally. Are the man and woman still vulnerable? More than ever. But for that very reason, their intimacy is all the more wondrous. End quote. The circle of marriage is where and only where our sexuality should be expressed. Because of sin, we've become sexual users and consumers Anything goes because in our culture, our feelings have imperial status. But God made marriage to be an expression of the exclusive and permanent and shame-free oneness that creates true sexual freedom. The sexual freedom preached by our culture is a cheap knockoff that ends up breaking us down 
rather than building us up. Brothers and sisters, if you're struggling with sexual sin, unwanted sexual behavior, please listen to this. You're not alone, number one. Jesus is a kind and good and gracious Savior. But hear this, the sexual freedom preached by our culture is a cheap knockoff that ends up breaking us down rather than building us up. The inner circle of marriage is where we celebrate God's good gift of sex. Exclusive, permanent, together. This is marriage. We've seen two things that God delights in, two things that God celebrates, the first woman and the first wedding. Women in marriage may be denigrated by some, but they're celebrated by God. His joy in them reveals something of his deepest heart. Interestingly, and I close, Paul quotes verse 24, here 2.24 in Ephesians 5, and says that marriage is a picture of Jesus' marriage to the church. He says this mystery is profound. What a word. This mystery, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying, Paul says, I'm saying that it refers to Jesus and the church. He's saying that marriage is ultimately meant to be a human window into how Jesus and his bride relate. Jesus isn't loosely or unofficially connected to his bride. No, there's a formal and deep intimacy of total connection between Jesus and his bride. And when we begin to see Jesus in that light, as a faithful husband who comes and scoops up his unfaithful wife with a joyful embrace, with no strings attached, when we begin to see Jesus as that kind of Savior, we'll sing like Adam did when he met Eve. When he met Eve. But so many of us, we think that Jesus is more or less unhappy with us rather than ready to come in and scoop us up in his arms. Like a good husband who comes down and meets his wife where she is, rather than waiting to, uh, for her to come where he is. When we see Jesus with eyes of faith and all of his glory and his welcome and acceptance and mercy, his tender forgiveness, his gentle and fierce love, we'll become like Adam and we'll lose ourselves in song and rejoice that God would give us such a one. What I'm saying is, how you view Jesus has a long way to go on whether you've actually understood him. Whether you've really understood who he is. Have you received him as your spouse who will never cheat on you, never leave you, never minimize you, never hurt you, never demean you, never take advantage of you, never ignore you, never give you the cold shoulder, never abuse you, never harm you, never forget your birthday, never do anything unkind or unloving to you. Have you seen Jesus as that kind of a Savior? Have you been wed to the one who celebrates women and weddings? Have you trusted his promise of unbreakable love? Friends, you can have him today. If you don't have Christ as your as your Faithful husband, today you can have him through faith. All you have to do is come. All you have to do is have need. And he stands ready to save you and love you and marry you forever.
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the beautiful gifts of women and marriage. Thank you for the beautiful and glorious gift that women are to our church, to our lives, our families, our culture. Please protect us from denigrating and demeaning our sisters in Christ, our mothers, our daughters. Help us to cherish them and celebrate them and honor them in ways that are unusual in this world. May we not be so, so stuck on roles, who can do what around here, that we forget to honor. Women who bear the image of God. Help us, Father. Help us to be kind as men. Help us to be considerate. Help us to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Quick to admit wrongs. And quick to ask for forgiveness. Help us to love and celebrate marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Lord, May we see it as you see it. May we see it as an exclusive, permanent togetherness that reveals the glories of Jesus' love, the glories of Jesus' acceptance and faithfulness. Help us to love marriage. Help us to love the gospel. Help those who are here struggling to see Jesus for who he really is, Father. Give them eyes to see the glorious and humble love of Jesus Christ. We pray in his precious name. Amen.